welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of October 13th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. Please excuse the sounds of construction in the background. Inside Jeffco Kids First and Ganal's Fuhrer Over Students by Riley Dunn for the Golden Transcript. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. Minds, students, alumni reflect on homecoming traditions by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. One dead, others injured after incident at Golden Bar. Two men arrested for suspected murder and assault by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. Colorado District 7 candidates explore wide-ranging topics. Voters have a chance to hear views during LWV Forum by Deb Hurley-Brobst for the Arvada Press. Arvada City Council to vote on 12.3% water rate increase by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Passionate beginnings and sorrowful endings engulf Baroque Chamber Orchestra's audience by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Homeless Navigation Program Gives Update by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript and following up with various articles. Inside Jeffco Kids First and Ganahl's Fuhrer Over Students by Riley Dunn. Over the summer, the members of a Facebook group called Jeffco Kids First began shifting their concern away from pandemic policies in schools to identities it deemed disruptive to learning. A leading voice in the group told parents to empower their children to find, quote, furries, kids who dress up in animal accessories and to record them. Quotes, if any of your kids would be willing to record anonymous audio of their experiences with furries, hissing, barking, clawing, chasing, and how it affects their school day, please send to me or let me know ASAP. Jeffco Kids First creator Lindsay Datko, a parent in Jefferson County Public Schools, posted. Details like these have not been widely publicized because the Facebook group is private, meaning only members can see what is posted. After being denied entry to the group, Colorado Community Media gained access through a member who wanted the group's content to be public. School officials say the group's activities can be disruptive and harmful to kids. But it has some strong backers, including Heidi Ganahl, the Republican Party's nominee in the fall's Colorado gubernatorial race. She's also a member of the group. Quote, Boy, Jeffco Kids First has been such an impactful and amazing community, and I've gotten to know a lot of you over the last past couple of years. Ganal said in a post in Jeffco Kids First, You are warriors fighting for our kids every day in the classroom and in school. I want to be a voice for all of you. Ganal has used the issue to spark furor during press interviews. Quote, not many people know that we have furries in Colorado schools, Ganal said in a September 24th KNUS radio interview. Have you heard about this? Yeah, kids identifying as cats. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it's happening all over Colorado, and schools are tolerating it. It's insane. 
Gunnell pointed to Jefferson County Schools in the interview. While principals can act to minimize distractions at schools, like placing restrictions on disruptive attire, the tactics of Jeffco Kids first amount to an attack on children, school board president Stephanie Shuley told Colorado Community Media. Quote, what I want is for people to stop demonizing our kids, Shuley said. That's what I feel like has been happening. That in objecting to and playing some of these identity politics, our kids hear this language. And they don't understand why people hate them for who they are, for how they were born, and who they've become. They don't understand, and that is psychologically so very damaging. It makes my heart hurt. Inside Jeffco Kids First. Neither Datco nor Ganahl responded to Colorado Community Media's request for interviews about the Facebook group's activities. Last month, Datco urged the nearly 6,000 members of Jeffco Kids First to have their kids secretly record their classmates. Quote, the media is trying to spin this, Datco wrote in the post. A member of the group posted an additional question. Go on TikTok and use the keywords furries in Colorado school. A Colorado community media search of TikTok found numerous posts where purported students in the state recorded videos of classmates who seemed unaware they were being filmed dressed in costumes and accessories. Some posts contained threats against the students being filmed. One post of a student apparently filmed without their knowledge contained the hashtag KillFurries. The other other posts harshly mocked the students. Other TikTok posts showed kids who described being bullied for wearing furry costumes or being associated with furries. Some of them complained that they were targeted. Several middle school-aged students at one Jefferson County school who were interviewed for this story said between 10 and 20 students occasionally dressed up in animal accessories at their school. The students said kids were wearing animal-themed accessories such as headbands or tails. The students said the accessories were not disruptive to their learning as the students who dress up were not allowed to wear the accessories in a classroom setting. The students added that Few students wear such items to school and do it only occasionally. Moreover, the frequency had declined dramatically after their principal cautioned students against it, the students interviewed said. The students also described feeling stressful and fearful of other bullying, especially online. Quote, I think we need to decipher between what is a furry and a kid wearing cat ears, one Jeffco parent told Colorado Community Media. Quote, is a furry a kid wearing cat ears or what I see adults in Old Town, Arvada wearing sometimes? A sports mascot could be considered a furry by this group's definition. Every student and parent interviewed for this story asked to be anonymous because they fear retaliation. They asked that their school not be identified in the story for the same reasons. Even members of Jeffco Kids First seem caught in the crosshairs. One posted an account of their own child's experience of dressing up. Quote, So my daughter wanted to be a furry. The October 7th post said, I didn't give my opinion and just observed. She is shy and quiet. Her and her friend liked the movie Wonder because of the ability to hide. Their choice of animal was a raptor. They decorated it with fur and made it girly. When my boy next door heard my daughter, when the boy next door heard my daughter was a furry, 
He was disgusted, the post continued. I asked him why, and he said he doesn't have time for that nonsense with all his sports. Well, my daughter now is moving away from furries because of the bad rap. My current view is that furries are still on the low here. I could be wrong. In response, one Jeffco Kids first group member wrote, quote, I appreciate the courage it took to post this. Is Jeffco Kids first anti-LGBTQ+. The controversy swirling around furries has at times been linked to anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric, particularly gender identity issues like the pronouns students use to identify themselves. But observers of Jeffco Kids First, like Shuli, who is not a member of the group, are hesitant to call the group anti-LGBTQ plus. Their group is large, Shuli said. I am always hesitant to put blanket statements out about large groups of people, what they put out as an organization. There's nothing objectionable when you look at the graphic that says what they're for, what they're against. The graphic, Shuli points to, says Jeffco Kids First advocates for, quote, parental consent, classroom transparency, parental choice and respect, greater communication with teachers and schools, consideration of sensitive topics and student backgrounds and unity. The graphic says the group opposes hate, division, veering from state standards and approved curriculum, removal of rights, removal of diversity, removal of resources, and supports for students. Yet the group has questioned practices pertaining to transgender students. Founder Lindsay Datko posted a graphic, quote, Ask my child their name, not their pronouns, and has cited Jefferson County Schools policy on controversial, sensitive issues, arguing that gender identity falls into that category, claiming that students are being forced to share their pronouns against their will. Quote, Let's think about something. Is asking every child their pronouns productive to the transgender community? Datko posted on September 26th. Students are forced in nearly every, if not every, secondary school. Shuli doesn't consider gender identity something that falls under the controversial topics policy, which was last updated in 2013. It allows for students or parents to request alternative programming if they take issue with parts of the curriculum that represent, quote, differing underlying values, beliefs, and interests from those of a parent or student. Quote, for me, the controversial topics policy is really to provide parents with the opportunity to understand what their kids are learning and content. And if that content is not something that they appreciate for their child, to provide a process to have an alternative, Shuli said. I do not support in any way, shape, or form having the identities of our students, their families, or our staff be anywhere near the controversial issues policy. Jeffco Schools Board Treasurer Danielle Varda agrees. Some people have invoked the controversial topics policy in regards to concerns about asking kids about their preferred pronouns, Varda said. However, the policy only covers sensitive topics that may be covered in instruction and by the curriculum. Shuli added that, to her knowledge, no child in the Jeffco district is mandated to share pronouns and explained how making 
pronoun disclosure optional also protects LGBTQ plus students. Quotes, if a student didn't feel comfortable, and it's not just students who object, who think it's silly to use pronouns, because I know there are people that prefer to not to, not to even consider them. And we also have students who are struggling with their gender identity and don't want to declare, quote, I'm this or that. Because they don't know yet, Shuley said. We want to be able to honor all of that spectrum, and we do that by making it optional. There are teachers that will ask. Students have no obligation. Shuley said some of the messaging from Jeffco Kids First has sparked some anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment from group members. Quote, My experience has been people writing me letters who are representatives of that group, not at the very top, but members of that group, and it is pretty harsh rhetoric in a lot of those letters, Shuley said. I would say that with that, it's pretty clearly uncomfortable with having LGBTQIA+, having the letters put in that order, and talked about with children. Quote, To me, is it anti-LGBTQ+, the letters I've received were? Shuley continued, I'm not calling the entire group that. That's not fair at all. But the letters I've received, some of them were specifically very hard to read. Colorado Community Media intends to file a Open Records Act request for the letters. Jeffco Schools Executive Director of Communications Kimberly Elo said that the district did not promise to review or change any district policy after meeting with representatives of Jeffco Kids First, despite posts in the group claiming otherwise. When Colorado Community Media asked Jeffco Schools Superintendent Tracy Dorland for a comment on the story, for transparency, a transparency had come to her attention during this time. But she waited to shift the focus of Jeffco Kids first out of fear of losing members. Quote, We kept pushing it off and pushing it off because we had such a clear mission to fulfill at that time during the pandemic, Datko said of parental transparency. She said she warned group members, We know we might lose you. We're going to turn to these issues, and that will be sad. But if you'll stay, we love your perspective, and you've been such a value. Datko then called superintendent's curriculum appalling and defined parental choice in her own words. Quote, books and literature that are presented, curriculum that's used. It's appalling, Dadko said. It's shocking. It's very important that we push for parental choice in every regard. Parental choice consists of being able to move schools to have a say in controversial topics and what's asked of our students on survey. That policy is followed. That policy keeps order. That policy keeps families safe and secure. And it's being broken right and left. Varda, the school board treasurer and a Jeffco parent, said her experience differs from Datko's. I'm proud to be a parent in a district that has overwhelming support for these values and beliefs. And although some groups will say otherwise and try to cast doubt, my experience has been one of transparency and support for the unique needs and identities of my kids, Varda said. Shuley said the district has a duty to be clear about its policies 
and practices, but the engagement from members of Jeffco Kids First isn't always conducive to discussion. I think it's regrettable that sometimes it feels like in this call for more transparency, greater parent engagement and their pillars, it does feel like there's not a whole lot of room for conversation, Shuley said. That if the district is doing something that parents don't like, it becomes a very immediate offensive act, a nefarious thing. There's automatically an ill intent that's assigned to it, and I find that challenging because I don't know where to go with that. Shuley also said she is open to conversations and has conversed with, quote, anyone who has asked. On October 4th, DATCO maintained that Jeffco Kids First is a bipartisan group and declared that she would continue to pursue her version of parental transparency. Hopefully, they can see through that we don't always agree. We are united behind choice, and we can honor the choices of everybody and fight for that, DATCO said, and that's what we're doing. That's our new mission. All the crazy, weird, sometimes awkward, and phenomenal experiences of being a kid. DATCO has this year been touted as one of the Ganal Gals, a women's group that aims to help Ganal beat Democrat Jared Polis in the November election. Ganal's campaign did not respond to a request for comment. Varda, a mother of three and a tenured professor at the University of Colorado Denver, said the furry issue is much to do about nothing. She emphasized that students are young and exploring their lives in creative ways, and it is important for their long-term mental health to be open and authentic, according to her research. I am certain that when we give kids not only academic tools they need to achieve, but also meet their social and economic barriers with resources, support, assurances of belonging and love, we will see accelerated learning, improved outcomes, and long-term opportunities for success, Varda said. Shuley said that while the efforts of Jeffco Kids First have garnered significant media attention and sidetracked district employees, far more letters from the community come in to bolster support for students. Quote, Once there was an awareness that this group was initiating this letter-writing campaign, we did start getting a lot of letters from parents, community members, students. There were a lot of students that wrote in. Alums of Jeffco Schools, very, very grateful and protective of things like gay-straight alliances, clubs in schools, over-safe spaces, and trusted adults in schools that students can talk to that are LGBTQ-friendly. around policies that provide supports and some protections for students, Shuley said. It was pretty overwhelming, that response, Shuley continued. It was significantly more emails that came in support of affirming practices than otherwise, which was great to me. That's my value set. I think people mobilized around that out of concern that the district would only hear one perspective and it would not be good for kids. The board is in the process of reviewing legal advice pertaining to the policy on controversial topics. If enough board members feel it should be reworked, there could be public hearings. Truly said students need support to be themselves. Quote, there are a whole lot more people in their corner who are ready to provide support, Shuley said. It's like parasol patrol. 
I will be your umbrella. There are lots of us who want to provide a barrier so you can be a kid and you can go through all the crazy, weird, sometimes awkward and phenomenal experiences of being a kid. And umbrellas are open to protect you from those things because there is zero reason why our children should be hearing that about themselves. To me, it's pretty unconscionable. Editor's note, Lindsay Datko contacted Colorado Community Media after online publication of this story to seek a retraction, stating that she sought, quote, anonymous verbal statements from children. Datko disagreed with the article's sentence, quote, Datko urged the nearly 6,000 members of Jeffco Kids First to have their kids secretly record their classmates. Screenshots from the group show she made that request. Datko confirmed to Colorado Community Media that she receives pictures of students, but indicated to the group that she has not used them. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. Mind Students alumni reflect on homecoming traditions by Corinne Westman. Houston's Chuck Wagner graduated from Colorado School of Mines in 1981 and hadn't been back to the campus in 40 years, so it was only proper that his first time back was on homecoming weekend. On October 8th, Wagner, his family, members, and friends, and other Mines alumni celebrated homecoming in Ordigger style, wearing blue and silver, packing Mary Kay Stadium, and cheering the football team on to a victory. The university hosted a variety of festivities throughout the weekend, including the traditional bonfire Friday nights and a 5K run, street fair, and tailgate on Saturday morning. It's a very energizing atmosphere, fellow 1981 graduate Diane Pryor said of Homecoming Weekend. It's a great time to reconnect with friends and see the improvements on campus. Prayer, who now lives in Grand Junction, said she usually visits campus a few times a year. She recalled enjoying homecoming as a student, but said it's a much better experience now as an alumna who doesn't have to worry about students anymore, studies anymore. Wagner and Lakewood's Joe Cornelison, who were fraternity brothers, described their homecoming experiences as students. In competing for the parade trophy one year, there was a mishap with the group's float that they recalled with a laugh. Anne Cornelison, who met Joe at Mines, said she and her husband typically watch the university's football games on TV, but usually attend the homecoming game. Joe added, quote, It's been beautiful to watch the campus change over the years. Wagner appreciated the chance to return to campus after so long, his father, who recently died, graduated from Mines in 1956, so Wagner and his family decided to attend homecoming partially as a tribute to him. But with so many Mines alumni in their families, Wagner and Joe Cornelison both felt it was a matter of time before they were back on campus again. It's nice to come back and see friends, Wagner continued. You always run into people at homecoming. A dynamite experience. Loveland's Nikki Terilli, who graduated from Mines in 1995, said her favorite part of homecoming, both as a student and as an alumna, was the parade. 
She and her sorority sisters competed for the best parade float every year, and after she graduated, she took her children to it. While there's no parade this year, this was a special homecoming for Nikki as her son Austin followed in her footsteps as an ore digger. Austin, who's a freshman at Mines, recalled fond memories of attending the homecoming parade as a child. As a student, though, the weekend provides a nice break from school, he described. Seniors Olivia Jackson and Tierra Tisby felt similar, describing how the professors are a little more relaxed for homecoming week. The two who were also on the Mines cheer team said homecoming is a unique experience. Jackson described going to the October 7th bonfire and meeting an alumnus who played the fight song on his harmonica. There was generally a good atmosphere, she added, as people roasted marshmallows and connected with each other. As for the football game, Tisby said there's a larger crowd with good energy and spirit, adding, quote, I look forward to the homecoming games more than anything. One dead, others injured after incident at Golden Bar. Two men arrested for suspected murder and assault by Corinne Westman. One man has died and seven others are injured after a suspect drove a car into a crowd at a Golden Bar early October 9th. Two men have been arrested and are scheduled to appear in court October 14th. Denver's Ruben Marquez, 29, was arrested as the reported driver in the incident outside the Rock Rest Lodge at 16005 Mount Vernon Road. The vehicle's registered owner, 25-year-old Ernesto de Jesus Avila of Denver, was reportedly a passenger at the time. He also was arrested as a suspected accessory, according to the Jeffco Sheriff's Office. On October 10th, JCSO identified 26-year-old Adrian Ponce as the victim who was pronounced dead at the scene. Of the seven who were injured, three had minor injuries that were treated at the scene. Four were transported to the hospital, including two bar employees. Jenny Fulton, a JCSO spokesperson, said October 10th, that one has since been released and the other three have serious injuries but are expected to survive. The Arrest Affidavit Report According to witness interviews described in the arrest affidavit, Avila and another passenger in the vehicle described going to the rock rest along with Marquez around 8 or 9 p.m. on October 8th. The three are cousins and rode together in Avila's white Chevrolet Silverado truck to the Rock Rest Lodge to celebrate a birthday. The group had several mixed drinks throughout the night, and according to witnesses, had talked to Ponce and two of his friends. One of Ponce's friends told deputies that he hires former inmates to help them rehabilitate, and Ponce was such a hire. This friend said the discussion between the two groups was only light banter, quote, about gang issues, according to the arrest affidavits. However, Avila claimed that shortly before leaving, he was confronted by two men who asked him about his gang affiliation. He denied being a gang member and told his cousins it was time to leave. At around 1.30 a.m. October 9th, Avila and the other cousin described getting into Avila's truck to leave, 
claiming a group of people surrounded their vehicle and prevented them from leaving. When they tried to exit the vehicle, they said an altercation started, and the other cousin ran north into the gravel parking lot. Avila and the other cousin's accounts differ, and Marquez didn't provide comment to the JCSO investigators. The other cousin described Avila as the driver, who picked him up as he ran away from the altercation. Avila described blacking out around that time. He recalled trying to pick up the other passenger on foot, but didn't recall how the car left the parking space or where it went. However, other witnesses described a man matching Marquez's description as being the driver during the incident. Ponce's friends, other bar patrons, and employees told investigators the two groups were engaged in a verbal confrontation outside the front entrance that escalated into a fight. Employees went out to break up the fight, and witnesses reported how the white truck drove into a crowd of people. Witnesses described the action as deliberate, with one saying, quote, the way he swerved into people was on purpose. At least seven people were struck, including Ponce, one of his friends, and bar employees. The white truck also reportedly hit a parked car with a person inside. JCSO has clarified how the person inside the parked car was unhurt, but the car sustained significant damage during the incident. An ongoing investigation. Emergency crews responded to the scene and attended to Ponce, who was later pronounced dead, and those injuries in the incident. The white Chevy Silverado truck was stopped in an area by a JCSO deputy with assistance from Colorado State Patrol. Marquez, Avila, and the other cousin were taken into custody without incident. The third is not facing charges at this time, JCSO reported. Marquez and Avila are scheduled to appear in court October 14th to formally hear the charges filed against them. Fulton added that investigators haven't confirmed whether it was a gang-motivated crime, and JCSO didn't, doesn't believe any of the parties involved knew each other before their encounter at the Rock Rest Lodge. We do not see this very often, Fulton continued. Personally, we haven't had an incident quite like this since I started here six years ago. Colorado District 7 candidates explore wide-ranging topics. Voters have a chance to hear views from during League of Women Voters Forum by Deb Herbley Brobst. The three candidates for Colorado's 7th U.S. Congressional District answered a host of questions from stopping gun violence to the U.S. economy during an online candidate forum on September 28th. Republican Eric Adland, Libertarian Ross Klopf, and Democrat Brittany Pedersen, who answered 15 questions during the forum, hoped to be elected to the seat in the U.S. House of Representatives vacated by Ed Perlmutter, who decided not to reseek election, not to seek re-election. Members of the House serve two-year terms. In addition, as part of redistricting, which takes place every 10 years, the far-reaching district now includes part of Douglas County, plus all of Broomfield, Jefferson, Gilpin, Clear Creek, Jefferson, Lake Park, Chaffee, Teller, Fremont, and Custer Counties. This is the first election bid for Adland, who is West Point graduate and served in Iraq and Afghanistan before working in the energy sector all over the world. 
Adland called addressing out-of-control inflation by reigning in government spending, curtailing crime, including securing the country's southern border, and restoring sound energy policy that balances with protecting the environment. His top three priorities. Klopf, who unsuccessfully ran for election in Colorado House District 28 in 2018, is a civil engineer with experience in transportation and water resources engineering. Klopf emphasized throughout the forum that his first focus was to empower the Congressional District 7 voters by asking for their input on issues before he voted. He wanted to end any voter fraud by implementing a system to give power back to voters. Pedersen represents District 22 in the Colorado Senate, and she served in the Colorado House from 2013 to 2019. Pedersen called her top three priorities protecting the country's democracy, helping the country recover from the pandemic, and continuing to invest in the transition toward sustainable energy. The forum, which was online to allow as many people as possible to attend virtually, was sponsored by the League of Women Voters in Chaffee and Jefferson Counties. Watch the entire 90-minute forum at lwvchaffeecounty.org. Accurate, fair elections. Quote, There is the greatest level of distrust in our election system than ever before, and that must be rectified, Adlin said. I don't believe this is a federal issue. It's a state issue to manage. We need a system where it is impossible to cheat, and it is accessible to all. Klopf called election integrity the bedrock of his campaign platform, saying elections should be about the candidate, not the political party. If you elect the party, then you agree to an outside entity meddling into elections, he said. That opens the door for corruption and fraud because out-of-state people getting involved in our elections. I don't trust the Democrat and Republican parties. Both parties have questionable ethics. Patterson explained that the public needed to elect representatives who would follow national rules for a free and fair presidential election, certifying the vote no matter who the winner is. Gun violence. Adlin said taking guns away from good citizens while criminals roam the streets is not the answer to gun violence. He advocate, advocated for the nation to be tough on crime, having law enforcement represent in schools and addressing the mental health component of the gun violence pro- program problem. Klopp explained that gun violence was not a political issue. Instead, it's an issue that community must work together to solve. And he wants to form a coalition of advocates from all political parties and from civic, religious, education, and community organization to create solutions. Patterson advocated for common sense gun safety legislation similar, nationally, similar to what Colorado has, such as red flag laws that allow guns to be taken from those who family or law enforcement feel are at risk to themselves or to others, closing background check loopholes to purchase a gun and more. Climate change. Adlin said Congress should lead the effort to move toward more sustainable energy sources, including balancing nuclear energy with oil and gas. 
To protect the environment and address climate change, Klopf advocated for a multifaceted approach, including using cleaner forms of energy and electric cars. Patterson added, quote, What keeps me inspired is we can solve this with the right policies. What we need immediately is making sure we're updating the energy grid so we are preparing for when we have storage for solar and wind-generated electricity. Women's Reproductive Rights Adland called Colorado's laws on women's reproductive rights extreme, saying the state should find a middle ground. He said the topic should be state's decisions and noted he would not support federal legislation on the issue. Klopf said some abortions should be allowed and protected and Congress should work on legislation that would not be challenged in the Supreme Court. Pedersen noted, quote, If elected, I will fight for women across the country who don't have a legislature like Colorado's. I will fight to protect rights on individual choice so women can decide when they would like to have a family. Representing Urban-Rural Areas Adlin said he hoped to spend less time in Washington, D.C. and more time in his district so he can talk to and help constituents. He noted that in the more rural areas of the district, agricultural interests must be protected. Klopf said he would represent everyone in the congressional district, both rural and urban, hoping voters in all parts of the district would provide him with information about the issues they face and how he can help. Pedersen noted that while voters throughout the district experience some of the same issues, for those in the rural areas, the issues are more acute. She said she wanted to better understand the issues those in rural areas face and represent them in Congress. Immigration on the Southern Border Adlin advocated for finishing the border wall with border control agents to help stop people from sneaking into the United States. He said he didn't want to stop the flow of immigrants, but to control it, including clarifying the process for immigrants to become U.S. citizens. Clough said that since Colorado is not a state that borders another country, he would want others directly involved to come to a resolution. He said constituents should provide input on how the immigration issues should be solved. Patterson said having humane immigration policies and processes for immigrants to get into the United States and obtain work permits could help solve businesses' problems with not finding enough workers. Arvada City Council to vote on 12.3% water rate increase by Riley Dunn. Arvada's City Council will vote on a 12.3% rate increase for water and wastewater sewer customers at October 17th business meeting. According to Arvada's Director of Utilities, Sharon Israel, the proposed increase would amount to a roughly $19 increase per bi-monthly bill cycle which would help fund improvements to aging water infrastructure in the city. The existing tier system would remain in place if the rate increase is passed by council, meaning that per bi-monthly cycle, tier 1 customers would pay $5.03 more 
per 1,000 gallons. Tier 2 customers, $6.29 more per 1,000 gallons. Tier 3 customers, $7.56 per 1,000 gallons. And Tier 4 customers, $10.07 per 1,000 gallons. The wastewater rate increase would be a $5.82 per 1,000 gallons, a 9.8% increase. A $4 bi-monthly service fee increase and a $2 bi-monthly wastewater service fee increase is also included in the proposal. Arvada's wastewater Arvada's water rates rather have increased by between 2 to 4% annually in recent years. Israel said she also stated that Arvada has historically low water rates. And the increase would still put the city in the bottom third of Denver metro area municipalities in terms of water bill cost. Israel added that Arvada has two water treatment plants, the Ralston Water Treatment Plant, which was built in the 1960s, and the Arvada Water Treatment Plant, built in the 1980s. Brad Wyant, the Ralston Water Treatment Plant's water treatment manager, said the infrastructure in those two plants was only designed to last 50 years and needs reinvestment to continue to function. Editors note a more detailed look at the proposed water increase will appear online the week of October 10th at arvadapress.com and in print in the October 20th edition of the paper. Passionate Beginnings and Sorrowful Endings in Gulf Baroque Chamber Orchestra's Audience by Andrew Fraley. Aspens may be turning yellow outside, but inside the Lakewood Cultural Center October 9th, the Baroque Chamber Orchestra presented all four seasons through the language of Vivaldi. The orchestra began not with spring, though, but Vivaldi's Concerto in D Major, bolstering even more expectation and anticipation for the season. But before spring began, the soloist Pauline Kempf began a prelude that created specifically for the occasion. Frank Noel, founder and artistic director of the orchestra, challenged each soloist to create their own prelude to the concerto they'd be performing, and they succeeded with flying colors and intuitive passions. Kempf's prelude to spring brought the sounds of the season to life, with birds chirping and a sense of pure curiosity, passionate beginnings, and escape from a darker time. The excitement of something new perfectly began the season of new starts. Ingrid Matthews' prelude was a more excited reflection of winter, harnessing the darker mood of the piece and bringing it to light as a start to summer. Each prelude shows the personality of the soloist, but Martin Davids channeled Vivaldi more than himself. He created what was an almost perfect extension of the concerto, a beginning that may have simply been lost in time, written by Vivaldi himself. And before winter, Cynthia Miller Freivogel harnessed the gradual transition of color to darkness, light to melancholy, autumn to winter. Smoother than winter itself with its sharp breaks, Freivogel brought the sensations of loss and goodbyes to the forefronts before a beautiful acceptance 
that led straight into the sudden break of Vivaldi's season of death. Noel made the point that the orchestra wants to show the audience more than just Baroque hits, but the lesser-known pieces that are still highly representative of their author, and they ended with Vivaldi's variations on La Folia. And a beautiful conclusion it was. This piece allowed every bright string in the orchestra to shine and blaze like the seasons couldn't. The talent of the orchestra was clear before, but now engulfing. The visual of all four soloists standing side by side, the violas, the cello, the bass, all together, showcased even more than the piece itself, but the performers' glee and pleasure in performing together. Quote, I don't know, there's one we've missed, said Dean Snyder, an audience member who said he has been seeing the orchestra perform for the last 12 years. We're fans, Snyder and his wife said. Homeless Navigation Program gives updates by Andrew Fraley. The Wheat Ridge Homeless Navigation Program updated City Council October 3rd on its progress in housing homeless residents since its last meeting in February, also describing the severe weather shelter network starting for the season. Started in December of 2020, the program aims to put people experiencing homelessness in Wheat Ridge into homes. Rebecca Rodebach the homeless navigator directly supports those people, collaborating with local nonprofits and community resources. And Corey Kohler, the housing navigator, helps those who are housing search ready or at risk of homelessness find those homes. I'm sure that you may that you know many people who are one missed paycheck away, so you can consider that as a risk of homelessness, explained Kolar. But for our purposes, we tried to narrow it down a little to folks who may be in a hotel, an extended stay, couch surfing with friends and family, or those at risk of eviction or lease not being renewed. Housing assistance can be referrals to rental assistance and helping them apply or help with current housing. Radebach also elaborated on the program's goal of, quote, functional zero homelessness, a term used by a housing movement called Built for Zero, describing ending homelessness for certain populations. Heavily focused on veteran and chronic homelessness, Rodebach explained they've identified 21 veterans in Jeffco experiencing homelessness so far, expecting to find more, and housed 15 in the last eight months. For people experiencing homelessness in general, the Navigator program has served 166 individuals since it began, Radebach said, with 55 people being enrolled since February. 15 of those 166 have gone to transitional housing, which she said could be an emergency shelter, temporary housing like a rehousing program, stayed with family or friend, paid for a motel, entered a substance substance use facility, or jail. 36 have gone to permanent stable housing, 28 more since the February update. Radebach said she has an active caseload of 58 clients, with Kolar, as housing navigator, having a growing caseload of six. Kolar also announced the seasonal start of the Severe Weather Shelter Network. 
The network is a coalition of churches across Jeffco that provide emergency shelter from October 1st to April 30th when the temperature drops below 32 degrees and there's humidity or below 20 regardless. There is one in Wheat Ridge serving Arvada as well, one in Lakewood serving Golden and Edgewater, and one in Inglewood serving Littleton too. Their exact locations can be found on the program's website. Each church can hold 40 guests, though they must register for the season beforehand. It must be in by 6 p.m. and out by 7 a.m. And can only bring in, as Kolar described, as many possessions that could fit on their lap. He also explained that people would be sleeping on the floor, but supplied blankets. The network also has criteria for staying, such as the ability to get up, off, and down to the ground without assistance, a background check, and spend a significant or bulk of their time in Jeffco. Pets are also not allowed we realize not everyone meets those criteria, said Kohler. And so we're na- collaborating with other navigators in Jeffco Human Services, and we do have a plan in place to help as many of those who are ineligible as we can. Patrick Goff, the Wheat Ridge City Manager, also elaborated on a previously initiated program by Jeffco Health and Human Services to open two navigation centers in the county. He said one location was identified already in Arvada, with another one central, more central to be identified soon. Though the county and cities have parted with the original company, meant to set up the center's blue line. The centers are still planned, but more in the city's control, said Goff. They are expected to offer short-term, long-term, and emergency sheltering, as well as wraparound services. Cyber attacks hit multiple communities. State of Colorado sees homepage taken down by foreign entity by Paula Zialcita and Matt Moray, Colorado Public Radio. After ransomware disrupted the government services of multiple Colorado communities earlier this year, state officials warned that cybercrime is on the rise. That alert rang true on October 5th when a cyber attack from a foreign entity took down Colorado, Colorado.gov, the homepage for the state's online services. The attack seems to be limited to the main directory page, with state services still available through their individual websites. There's currently no timeline for the homepage's restoration. A Russian-speaking group known as Killnet claimed responsibility for Wednesday's website outages in a post on Telegram, an instant messaging service that's grown in popularity outside the United States. The hacktivist group ramped up its activity in NATO countries after Russia invaded Ukraine. This latest attack also took down government websites in other states, including Alabama, Alaska, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Kansas, Kentucky, and Mississippi. Some of those pages are now back online. A spokesperson for the Governor's Office of Information Technology declined to comment on the attack Thursday due to the ongoing criminal investigation. It's unclear whether the attack came with a ransom demand. That would put the state in a situation familiar to several local governments in Colorado that have faced multi-million dollar extortion attempts in order to restore their systems, 
Both Fremont County and the Denver suburb of Wheat Ridge were recently hit by black cat ransomware attacks, which allow hackers to block access to a computer system or function until their target pays up or rebuilds their framework. Neither of the two communities targeted paid their ransoms, leaving some government services and internal functions down for a period of time. It's like going back to the 1980s for our staff, where they are working around the clock and so hard to make sure that the impact is minimal, Wheat Ridge spokesperson Amanda Harrison said. But that means they have to resort to some really outdated ways of doing that. We don't have all of our servers turned back on yet because we are ensuring that they are safe and secure. Harrison said the attack mainly impacted city employees, not members of the public. Fremont County wasn't as lucky. Many of the county's offices were closed for over a month after it was targeted in mid-August. Despite rejecting the hackers' demands, both communities had to spend money to rebuild and bring services back online with new security measures. Ray Yippes, Colorado Chief Information Security Officer, said the two attacks on Fremont County and Wheat Ridge are unrelated and came from two different groups who want money. Yippis said that's bad news because it means that future attacks are likely. He stressed that local governments need to be prepared for that possibility. Because Colorado has historically relied on decentralized approach to cybersecurity, smaller cities and counties often lack resources to deter hackers and quickly respond to outages. State lawmakers decided in 2021 to adopt a, quote, whole-of-state approach to cybersecurity, which allowed Yippes and his team to act as roaming support staff for communities in need. Quote, Any government's entity's problem is our problem, and we're here to help them. We have more resources than they have, Yippes said. When you look at the whole of a state approach, it's an idea, it's a model. Local, federal, every resource that you can find, you bring them together, you combine your expertise, the resources, your main power to be able to fight cybercrime together. Yepes said the threat of cybersecurity should be taken seriously. In addition to bringing down vital government services, they can sometimes reveal sensitive information, like social security codes and bank account information. We are all driven by technology, Yepes said. The water system can be affected by cyber attacks. Transit can be affected by cyber attacks. Anything that we do nowadays in our life depends on technology. Colorado has learned costly lessons from previous cyber attacks. The state paid $1.7 million in overtime, meals, and equipment to restore the Colorado Department of Transportation servers in 2018. Earlier this month, Boulder County mistakenly sent $238,000 to a fraudulent account after a cyber attack allowed hackers to pose as the vendors the county owed. This story is from CPR News, a nonprofit news source. Use by permission. For more and to support Colorado Public Radio, visit CPR.org. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. I'm Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-786. 7777.